The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. You guys heard about Japan's new smiling problem? <laughs> Do tell, Dave. <laughs> I didn't realize that they only recently lifted mask mandates. Oh, yeah, okay. In Japan, June. I think was when they lifted mask mandates. Uh, it turns out that people have forgotten in Japan apparently how to smile. Oh, no. Fortunately, there are smile coaches ready to help for a fee. For uh, one company said class attendees are up four and a half times at 80 bucks a session. So To learn how to smile? To learn how to smile, Japanese people. I can't imagine that's real. I Come just, on, you think back to when you first took off your mask. I was trying to smile at everybody I mean, all the time. I, I understand, like, yes... But also, there's a weird moment when you've done that, when you're like, I don't remember exactly how I'm supposed to act now. I, th- I honestly thought that she was trying to suggest that I can't believe somebody would try to capitalize that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not surprised that I've seen, to the, <laughs> I've seen the internet. <laughs> no, I just... Well, I, well this was a, a, a parent, from my reading of this article I read, it was it's apparently been something that already existed, oh. you know. I guess people and you, sometimes you need to learn. I've met some people, I'm like, your smile is not quite right. <laughs> David is so judgmental. Well, I mean, you know, haven't you met people where you've been like, where you've been like, I'm not sure that smile is real or authentic or oh, they're oh, still okay. learning how to smile. They're still learning, like they're in the, still in the, like, I'm looking in the mirror every day. Yeah, they're in class two. I <laughs> that you were sort of saying like wow that's an ugly smile no, like no. shoot <laughs> certainly not just go up to and smile less yeah. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever tried um, fixing this that's not helping you yeah. that's smiling that you're doing oh man see how many people smile around you now gee yeah <laughs> i'm always judging your smiles people <laughs> Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast. This is a show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose. It's a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler, and with me today in the SCP studio, a couple of medical curiosities in human form. His body employs myosin and actin to flex on his haters. It's M2 Jeff Goddard. Just flexing away. And her glial cells are always influencing her synaptic plasticity so she can learn vast amounts of medical st- school stuff she may or may not use in practice. It's new co-host in M1, Fallon Jung. Really excited to use a Krebs cycle. Is it Jung? It's Jung, I've, like Okay, jungle. good. I've yeah. always been. You're a longtime listener of the show. First time caller. Um, First time <laughs> And now you're here at CECOM, week and a half into medical school, Fallon. What's it been like so far? Huh? Are you losing your mind? I am not losing my mind. (laughs) It's definitely hard, though. I mean, there are a lot of people tell you that medical school is hard. And I think that it's one of those things that you just need to experience yourself to really know. But it's not hard exactly for the reasons that I thought it was going to be. Obviously, it's a lot of information. But mostly I'm having a hard time just like keeping my schedule together and making like creating a routine for myself. So. Okay. Yeah, I frequently find myself saying that medical school is a mile wide and an inch deep. It's not necessarily that the material is particularly difficult or in depth. The problem is that there is a lot of material. Yes. And you have, at least our school and every school is a little bit different, right? But we have two week blocks. And so in those two weeks, we will do 18 to 22 lectures, hour long lectures. So that's, you know, about 20 hours of lecture material every two weeks that you're going to be tested on. And then you move on to the next blog immediately afterwards. 
and that pace and then you know your other courses like anatomy or you know the other classes that we have that pace is uh, pretty demanding challenging yeah. yeah and so yeah you're right i don't think that it's necessarily difficult in the sense that like wow i just don't understand this material it's more yeah. like i forgot that i learned that three days ago because i've had six lectures since then exactly so. <laughs> yes yes yeah so yeah uh, why did you want to be a doctor in the first place Oh my goodness! Why'd you want to do this, Dave? Why did you have to ask me this question? You don't have to have a big reason. (laughs) You like science. You want to help people. I like science, and I want to help people. No, honestly, what did you put on your personal statement? (laughs) What did I put on my personal statement? (laughs) She's Um, blocked out that part of her life. I guess I've just had like a lot of experiences throughout life where I saw people, even in medical field adjacent things being really helpful to other people. So like when I was a little kid, for example, I had a friend who had stepped on something weird and unknown. And then within probably three days, she started getting red streaks up her leg. And yeah, she was in the hospital for what felt like ever and like almost lost her leg kind of thing. And I just like, I don't know that definitely I never don't wear shoes and also (laughs) the ways that this transformed your life i mean the little things when you're a kid like when you're seven years old they a hundred percent change you and yeah so i mean i just i saw people help her and i that was part of it i mean i've had like one of my siblings has gone through cancer and like so that has inexorably changed like our lives and it's just you know my grandma's gone through a stroke and all of those things it's just doctors help a lot of people that's it can't really be understated okay well whatever your reasons i'm glad you're here thanks for joining us for the first time thank you welcome to the cool kids club yeah population dave tell your tell your okay tell your m1 colleagues to get their asses on the show go tell them what you experience here today and make and tell them to stop worrying so much about their exams I don't think I can do that last part. How did you? What made you? <laughs> Give until Friday, Dave. They just got to get through one. You got to see what it's like. You're right. They'll this is the first break. exam. This is the first oh, exam. Oh, this is the first exam. Yeah. This is the first exam. Oh, that explains why there's only two people in this room. Yeah. yeah. And it's also a biochem room. exam, which is like. Mm-hmm. See, as the, the resident type B M2 in the room, <laughs> in, in my class, I think I'm the most. Like, I tried to grab a couple of my classmates ones that i know are just absolutely crushing it and they're like i don't think i can spare an hour today i'm like bro you come on you've done this hour. for a year you can do this yeah found did it i you know honestly this is something though that i'm this is something that i know is good for my mental health like i love chit-chatting it up and so this good. is sort of like Fallon's like i want to be a doctor because i want to be on the short goat podcast <laughs> <laughs> i want to be a doctor so i can talk to people <laughs> Yeah, well, as I said, but I'm glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be hope, here. Hope to see you many times on the show. You're going to get sick of me. Awesome. I love being sick of people. <laughs> the Philadelphia's. Philadelphia's Mutter Museum. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Renowned for its vast collection of medical oddities. is facing criticism over fears. It's removing its displays of human remains. I don't know if that's true. But there are fears and the fears are born out of recently the museum deleted most of its website images and videos to reassess the ethics of those images. Critics claim that this what the new director Kate Quinn is calling a postmortem 
aims to sanitize the beloved museum under pressure to conform to modern sensibilities. But Quinn states that she wants to take a more respectful approach in line with the museum's education mission. And I found this whole article that I read in the New York Times really interesting because it it talks about the tensions that I think reflect these sort of broader debates about around, you know, who's who gets to tell certain stories, who gets to, you know, display things or you know who gets to who who gets to tell the story about marginalized bodies how do you balance education with spectacle and you know how do you reconcile these sort of revered institutions with shifting cultural expectations those are the things i want to talk about today i think we have to admit that these displays trade on our sense of intrigue that we have for the strange or the unusual or the repulsive even the macabre. Um, yeah, the freak shows and circuses and cabinets of curiosities that the rich men in Victorian age collected. Mm, weird um, times. The museum was renovated, in fact, in the 1980s to mirror this Victorian aesthetic. So I guess what is it about, the first question I wanted to ask is, what is it about people that were drawn to these displays of like two-headed calves and, you know, weird shit is that okay? Is that cool? I'll let Fallon go first. She oh. definitely has an expression on her face. Yeah, she's, she's feeling her feels. Well, that's. The th- I think my face feels all my feels for me. Good, good. Um, but I don't know. The fact that people are drawn to them isn't necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just that people are drawn to them. Well, if you're a museum trying to... Well, right. But I mean, like, why do people rubberneck, for example, at... What do we call these things? Car crashes. Yeah, Why that's what we call them, yes. Yeah. That, that phrase was supplanted by a portion of the Krebs cycle this week. <laughs> synapses are like, that way, out. We don't, we don't need, need that. that shit. Prune that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway, yeah, but like, why do people rubberneck at car crashes? Why do, you know, like, why do people want to see, but also don't want to, like, Yeah. there's definitely this tension, even like, I think, I don't know why people do it. I don't have all the answers. Or any answers. <laughs> First week of medical school and still doesn't have all the answers. No. Disappointed. Oh, gosh. How am I going to become a doctor? Yeah. Humans are hardwired for novelty. Yeah. Mm. And certainly there's a spectrum, right? Some people are less inclined toward the novel than others. But as a species, curiosity has is something that has led us to be the dominant species on this planet. It has served us well. And therefore, mm. one might say... It's been genetically selected for. Okay. Um, and now we want things to be new. We want to see something we've never seen before. Unfortunately, we run out of that novelty. Which is why we click through Instagram all the time. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, like, for example, I did my undergraduate in Utah. If anybody's been to Utah, it's pretty remarkable that half of the sky is made out of mountains. They are gorgeous. Mm. Absolutely yeah. stunning. And they make you contemplate something bigger than yourself. Unless you've been there for a few years and then they're just, you know, what's outside your front door and you kind of forget about it, right? I see. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the answer. We we want to see something we've never seen before. We want to contemplate something that we don't quite understand. And we want to not understand, but we want to grasp for it. I think as soon as we do understand, well, there goes the novelty. Okay. Yeah. That's... Yeah, a lot of the people who are you know, sort of commenting on this and are upset by this effort by the museum to sort of reevaluate 
is well what's wrong what's wrong with these things what's you know what's wrong with this mummy what's wrong with you know the fetus with four arms what you know like i don't i'm just making shit up i don't really know what exactly i can only imagine what exactly has been exhibited in this museum but so i would guess if okay so i have two conflicting thoughts like all human beings i contain multitudes (laughs) i'm comfortable with that on the one hand i don't necessarily think that i hold the human body as necessarily or inherently like i don't know we treat it with reverence we treat it with a level of sacredness right and that's always been the case since the very beginning we've done this was why we can find burial sites of people that lived ten thousand fifteen thousand years ago right? right we treat our bodies with respect and there's a reason for that i don't necessarily understand what the reason is but we do that i don't necessarily feel such a strong inclination towards that but i recognize that's a thing do you ever do you, did you read Heinlein, mm-hmm. robert Heinlein, the fiction writer from the 50s real whack job definitely <laughs> you brought him up before yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember he, was, this. he was a guy i used to read when i was a teenager and didn't understand it exactly what i was or even younger didn't understand exactly what i was reading he's problematic in a few different ways but one of the things he said that kind of resonated with me is we don't own our genes we don't own and he was a big eugenicist too so mm-hmm. that's kind of a problem but we don't own our dna we don't you know, that's something that belongs to our past and to our future. And we're just using it right now. And that seems to sort of relate to what you just said, Jeff, which is, you know, we feel as though, you know, there's a sacredness to the human body. And that sort of implies that we own it in some way. Whereas I just kind of feel a little bit like maybe we're just caretaking it for a little while. And then, yeah. And we do certainly have a lot of attention around that idea. I think inherently as individuals, as a species, we've which just would seem to, had that. Which would seem to argue that it doesn't matter what we do with the human body after we're done with it. You know, you could put it on a mu- display in a museum. And I, I, I think the better argument here is it doesn't matter what I do with my body right. after. Yeah. Right. To an extent it does. Like, obviously, we give some level of autonomy to a human being with what they want to do with their remains. Yeah. In fact, problematically, more so than we do to some living people with the autonomy of their mm-hmm. bodies. That's a whole nother argument. But... I think the point of even having this type of museum is this argument that we belong to each other, right? So these people who are now gone, we have a responsibility or they have, we're implying a responsibility on them to share their story with us, to share it with our community, with our species. A mummy that lived 3000 years ago definitely didn't sign any kind of consent to be displayed, right? right? But at the same time, we feel not only comfortable, but a sense of obligation that people should see this, that people should experience this. This should be a part of this story. This needs to be shared. So yeah, I think we do belong to each other in a way that maybe we don't always understand or even agree with, but it's certainly inherent to us. We feel it viscerally that there's some group ownership of each other. I think definitely one of the other considerations that the museum is sort of coming to is, you know, a lot of these... It's possible that a lot of these exhibits were obtained in less than cool circumstances, yeah. but they don't really know. <laughs> I, d- I just less than cool. <laughs> they could have been way cooler crimes, but, but they weren't very cool crimes. Let me tell you. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, like there are no records on a lot of these exhibits. You know where they came from, and you know how they were acquired, and all this kind of stuff. So that's among, I think, the considerations that they're dealing with. You know, these are these did belong to people. These did belong to you know, and those people had other people 
that love them, perhaps. Yeah, I think maybe part of the reason why we feel that the human body is so sacred is because in some ways we feel like our personhood, right, is stuck within these walls. And it's hard to, once we die, disassociate those two things. So, you know, if I died right now and somebody saw my body, they'd still say, that's Fallon. And I think that that's a really hard thing to do. And especially in such a circumstance where, you know, those remains weren't necessarily gotten in the most cool circumstances, right? Like, where are those families out there saying like, hey, you know, this is my niece, this is my daughter, this is my son. Or these were, you know, for instance, I know there was one example I read where they did realize that, where they did know that it was basically taken from some native american tribe and you know that's not cool no. that, that, that's not something you do yeah so there's a story of some remains in somewhere in the north or the pacific northwest where the tribes had a legal case against these people that had these remains and the law was clear if it belonged to their tribe they had full jurisdiction over the remains right but then they did some genetic testing and they showed that they didn't have any more claim to them than any other indigenous group in the community and the region and therefore, they belong to everybody. And so they couldn't have special claim to them. Oh, that's um, I mean, it's always going to be an arbitrary line that we draw on the sand on these issues. But at the same time, like we're always going to look for some line somewhere because we recognize this is hard for everybody to try to figure this stuff out. Yeah. So I'm, I do have something to say about the sensibility argument, though, where people are like, oh, these darn kids trying to change the old ways. Grumpy Gusses are going to be grumpy Gusses. That's just <laughs> a thing. But like... I think it's wonderful that we as a society frequently do enough introspection to consider what matters to us now. And if that changes from the generation before, great. Yeah. It means that we're not just relying on the peer pressure of dead people, in other words, tradition, to make our decisions (laughs) on what our ethics and morality are going to be. And I think that's important. Every generation deserves to be able to do that for themselves. And if our society has changed what we feel like is acceptable for how we display these remains how we source these remains what we're going to do with remains that were sourced maybe contrary to our current ethics i think that those are really good and hard questions for us to be considering and that type of introspection should be lauded i think certainly i don't want somebody saying well my great great grandfather had a human skull so i should be able to have one like "Eh, no yeah i kind of understand the impulse that people have to resist change i mean I, you know, I don't always like change, but things do change no matter whether you want them to or not. Social mores evolve. We under, we find out new things scientifically or technologically. Language changes. Language changes. Yeah. We're now a global society, and so we've been exposed to different ideas than we once had, and so that changes things. Shortcoats, we love to hear from you, no matter what. It's about. So call us at 347-SHORT-CT with questions, shower thoughts, complaints about your situation, whatever you like. We'll talk about it on the show. So have you guys ever read a man by the name of Jonathan Haidt? I don't think so. He's kind of popular, I would say, in conversations around sociology and political science. He's gotten into a little bit of trouble more recently because he's what I would refer to as a blue dog. So he's considered himself to be a little bit, he's considered himself to be left of center. He would be probably a run of the mill, to use American politics as an example, he would be a run of the mill Democrat in the 90s. Okay. But he's still that. 
and the Democratic Party has moved on, shifted. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. We like we just talked about people change over time, right? That's fine. Groups change, but because of that, he's gotten a little bit of blowback for being a little bit too stuck in his ways. Interestingly, one of my favorite concepts that he's talked about in one of his books is this idea of societies needing um, progressives and conservatives. And you don't have to tie those to parties. That doesn't matter. It's the very idea of conservatism and progressivism, right? We have to, as a society, push forward to new things in order to continue to improve, right? So we need progressives, whether it's the guy that invented the printing press or the guy that decides that, you know what, insurance as a general concept is pretty good so people don't have to worry about their house burning down and then not having anything tomorrow. That's a cool idea. Let's move forward and try something new, right? So we need as a society people that are trying stuff that is new. We also as a society need people that are holding us back a little bit, that are saying, but what has worked? And so I think that that tension is a good thing inherently in society. And certainly I think it's a good thing in situations like this where we think like, oh, well, maybe we should do something different when it comes to these remains. Fair, but also this is what we've always done and it has worked in this way and maybe we're comfortable with that. And I think having that conversation is good because we don't yeah, want... Because a, a true progressive, right, might say, oh, we got to close this museum. This museum is bad Yeah, for, we're really cool. for under today's, you know... We don't like what was done before, so we're just going to change we're everything. We're scrap it. Yeah, instead of some tension of saying, some kind of compromise of saying, we don't like what was done before, some parts of it, we're going to change, right, right? right? And we're going to keep some other parts of it, right? Right. I, I mean, think, ooh, yeah. Sorry, go, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say one of the biggest issues that we have right now between progressives and conservatives, regardless of party, is that we don't. It doesn't seem like, at least, we really know how to have productive conversations and conversations that are respectful between both of those idea groups. And so, how do we, how do we learn that next? You know, like. It's yeah. great that we have both, but uh, I don't know my history well enough to know that we're doing something. I mean, we're definitely doing, you know, right now, this conflict that we have between you know, these two sort of general groups of ideas, I think, is unusual for me in my lifetime, the intensity of it anyway. Mm-hmm. But it's always, you know, it's always been there. I don't know my American history well enough to know that we haven't gone through these things before. I feel like we might have in at some, in some well, period. We did have a civil war once. I mean, there is that. So I'm going to make that pitch. Yeah. yeah. But, um, okay. Well, um, keep that one. So, <laughs> I actually, so fun fact for the audience, there are a lot of classes that you can take through universities for free online. Harvard does this. Johns Hopkins yeah. does this over the summer. I had a little bit of extra time. That's not true, but I made some <laughs> extra time and I took a class through Harvard on us political history yeah trying to understand the system of the united states how we approach politics politics as an institution for government not necessarily politics on how we yell at one another we have always had a two-party system since george washington i thought it was since jefferson so his two right-hand people john adams and thomas jefferson in his second term created the two parties so he was still president and specifically told them don't do parties but they had already the ship had already sailed like we were already in the two-party system but i think the difference has been usually one party will be the majority party for a long period of time with very little exception the republican party from lincoln all the way to fdr was in charge decades decades people were born and died in that time right and then fdr took over and it was fdr until nixon right with one 
one executive exception of somebody who was so moderate that it would be hard to tell which party it was. Fun fact, Eisenhower, nobody knew what party it was. Both parties offered him the nomination because they're like, yeah. <laughs> and he just went with the Republican Party. It's like a dream. Yeah. He was just the American that everybody liked. And, you know, so we had these long periods of time where it was basically just one party. And I'm not saying that's the best system either, right? But we didn't have this big tension. And then we really started getting into this back and forth between two major parties around the time of Nixon. But it was more like four parties because you had conservative Democrats and you had progressive Democrats. And then you had progressive Republicans and you had conservative Republicans. And then over like within my lifetime, those the two parties have just slowly started shifting. You started seeing, you know, anybody that was conservative, they just left the Democratic Party and they where else were they going to go? They have no other option. They had to become Republicans. And anybody that was really progressive was like, I can't deal with these Republicans anymore. I'm going the other way. And they had only one place to go, the Democrats. And so what used to be not so much ideological differences between the two parties has become incredibly ideological. And that's, I mean, that's American politics. And this is not necessarily a, politi- a political podcast, but like, it's frustrating because now a lot of things aren't getting done. And the one hope that we have is if we could stop going back and forth. If yeah. one party yeah. got control for a long period of time, we could be more moderate, right? One party would, the other party would be pulled towards the middle. That party would be pulled towards the middle. But because they have to be in opposition to one another, half of their platforms aren't really their platforms. It's just the contrary to whatever noise. the other yeah, platform is. they're just is. making noise so they get press coverage. Yeah, and uh, that's not necessarily healthy for any culture. But well, so so your overall argument, though, I think, is that, you know, we historically we've needed sort of this tension between the two general viewpoints. Yeah. And it has um, been very helpful. And it's been helpful to us. Maybe I don't know if we're past that or something that where now it's not very helpful. But I know that one argument that the critics have of this change for the museum is that some people have undoubtedly decided on career paths such as being a doctor or being a biologist or being an anatomist based after seeing these displays. And, you know, should the educational value to future doctors, biologists, and anatomists outweigh the ethical concerns about consent and dignity and things like, and, you know, these sort of modern, <laughs> these modern ideas. I, these modern these ideas modern of ideas human of, rights. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of feel like if you think that you're going to become an anatomist or a doctor or whatever, like, Going to that museum, if that's the only reason that's ever going to happen, like... Well, I, I, I think the argument is that, you know, I was first exposed to these ideas by this, by the displays in this museum. And I never would have, like, this is the formative, this is the formative thing that put me on my path. And see, I'm sympathetic to that argument if we're talking about a two-headed calf or something that's in this museum, right? But if they're human remains, we as a society have decided... Uh, even post-mortem, humans have rights. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And were you going to... Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, you're totally fine. I think also if you're going to become an anatomist or a doctor or something, those additional more quote-unquote modern ideals are part are going to be part of your anatomy training or yeah. your doctor training, and you have to abide by those Yeah, things. yeah. So... You're, you're legally, ethically, you know, yeah, like everybody morally. around you. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I mean, like, in my opinion, those trump. You know? Yeah. Ooh. I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Those language is fun, isn't it? Language is fun. It's always changing. Yeah, so I guess my argument would be I want this this museum to continue into perpetuity, but I want it to do so continually evaluating the ethics of its displays. I think that is very reasonable and arguably 
the most helpful thing from an educational standpoint that they could offer anybody coming to their museum. Yeah, sure. That's definitely fair. Why did we make this change? What considerations did we, you know, what things did we consider while we were, while we were making these changes? Why is it important? Yeah. Those are great topics. Yeah. And I think frankly, if a kid's coming to a museum, one of the best things that a human could ever learn is we can change. We yeah. did some, we did something different in the past, but guess what? We don't have to do that forever. Yeah. If only there were a museum about change, that would really be something. There is one of the fundamental paradoxes of life is that there's one constant. The universe changes. And yet we are always surprised that things around us are changing. (laughs) Oh, man. I thought you were about to say there's one constant. Museums. Museums. They're (laughs) always there for you. My friends, does the age or origin of remains affect the ethics of displaying them. Oh, I was going to say, take it away, Jeff. Oh, yeah, I mean, if you'd like, yeah. So, I, yes. Jeff will never turn down. <laughs> the, I, it, there's a problem. The opportunity to express himself. Yeah, I think a lot about these types of issues, about ethics, about morality, about philosophy, to the extent that I'm kind of annoying sometimes, and I get that. <laughs> My wife thinks it's endearing. That's all that matters. Um, <laughs> that's true. So... Yes, because those remains, while they may be sacred on on a general level, and if you don't like that word, revered, I don't... Look, it doesn't necessarily matter if you believe in something higher than humanity. We all know that there's there are things in our lives that are sacred. That's just... That's a human constant. These remains are sacred to us. Human remains are sacred to us. For some reason, our brains just say that this is. But they're going to be more sacred if they're closer to you. And if there are relatives alive... If there are, if there's anybody alive that would know this individual or that has a journal of this individual or is emotionally attached to this person, yeah, that one's going to take precedent. I think that one requires a lot more conversation than something that's 10,000 years old. Sure. It's definitely fair. So yeah, you've got two considerations there. I mean, they're bound up together, but the age of remains could mean that they're sort of open it's open season on those to be displayed. But there are also people who do feel a connection to their ancient history. I think the the one that I'm thinking of is, of course, you know, the Native American tradition of revere, revering ancestors, even ones that they never met themselves and that kind of thing. Whereas I think, you know, some a more secular person like myself realizes that, you know, nobody's going to remember me after I'm gone, except for maybe, you know, one generation and so that's why I'm planning on uploading all of the episodes of this podcast to the Internet Wayback Machine so that I will at least have some voice when I'm... <laughs> and then they'll use an AI to recreate. You know, perfect. <laughs> More likely, they'll be like, this is not worth the computing power. <laughs> Hello, my name re- is Dave. <laughs> so there's a constant, there's a fun fact for the kids at home. There's a genetic Plinko game going on at all times. If you don't know what Plinko is, I don't know what to do. What is Plinko? Oh, there I we need go. to know. Uh, it's so, a game where you... So I'm thinking of Bob Barker and The Price is Right, where you stand at the top of this board with many pegs. Okay. And you drop a chip at the top and the chip oh, and bounces then, down mm, around the, the pegs and then eventually settles into a place. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so right. it's very symmetrical in where the pegs are. The holes at the bottom are all symmetrical. The, everything looks like you should be able to figure out Predict. where this is going to go, right. right? But chaos theory. There are too many variables, right? Gotcha. But there still seems to be some kind of sorting, right? Gotcha. And I actually so, did know this game. I just didn't know how to name it. Yeah. Well, I mean, somebody didn't, so I'm glad you had the conversation. (laughs) The genetic Plinko, the order, the ordering over time, at some point, you will either have zero descendants or 
such a large number of descendants that it would be uh, impractical to consider one person to be your like primary yeah uh, primogenitor right so like if we're looking at remains from 10,000 years ago as an example just as an arbitrary number either nobody alive is a descendant of that person which is a very high probability or so many people alive today are direct descendants of this person or have genetic information from this person that it would be silly to say that any one person or even people have more of a claim to that person now where that line is i don't know 100 years ago yeah a family's gonna have a little bit more precedence 500 years ago you could certainly say a community has more precedence but once you start going far enough back and all of a sudden i don't think that it's really fair to say that any people have more of a claim to remains than anybody else i would argue though that and this is different for different people talking about before but there are very there are a lot of people that feel like they feel some connection to the land that they live on. So if there are remains in a certain area, those connections are important. And I think that in that way, like geographically, people can get like people can get like they want those remains yeah. of those people around because specifically because of that geography. Yeah. And I get that. But like yeah. so I, as an example I use quite a bit, I have a brother in law who well, and a sister who lives in Poland. He teaches at a Polish university. He has studied Polish history. And so I feel like he is somewhat able to speak to this. His He has tongue-in-cheek argument that there's no such thing as Poland in the sense that the borders of Poland have shifted so much mm -hmm. and entire ethnic groups have both come into and out of Poland, not to mention the fact that there's been a lot of immigration, right? Not just of individuals, but of whole communities, whole peoples, mm -hmm. genetic groups of people and the language has shifted so much that over the last thousand years, there's no such thing as Poland. It's just where we call Poland now. So any idea, so he brings this up because there's a big nationalist movement of Poland and they're like, we're Polish people and we don't want those non-Polish people. And he's like, what do you mean you're Polish people? You know, 200 years ago, this you weren't even you in weren't. the country of Poland. <laughs> right. Like it's a whole nother thing. And I'm sympathetic to that argument because I, that's very much the case for human history is that no, nobody has been in the same spot forever right? Everybody has come from somewhere else. And there's always a movement of people across these lands. Th that's not to say that some people don't have more of a claim, right? But they don't have like an eternal claim. And I think if anybody's going to have more of a claim, I'm more comfortable saying, you know, indigenous Americans have a lot more of a claim to or in indigenous people, wherever, yeah, wherever you are. Yeah. Because, you know, they've been there the longest, right? right? But I'm also kind of hesitant because i recognize that those may have been other cultures right so like for example i've got family in the guatemala southern mexico region. we refer to ourselves as maya that's very common mm -hmm. right it's not really maya but like that's our heritage right we don't necessarily feel like we get a claim on everything that is maya more than say the mexicans would or the guatemalans would we just kind of all are part of this shared cultural heritage mm -hmm. and i get that's like a that's a very Latino thing. I've learned that more so recently that turns out we are sharing folk. To, I think I'm more sympathetic to the idea that we kind of all need to share this but heritage. Would you feel differently if somebody from Poland, for example, came over and they were like, hey, this is mine too? 
I okay. So, and I recognize that I'm in the minority on this, and I'm comfortable with that. And, I, and it, it doesn't have to be this way. But I think, in large part, because of the culture that I grew up in, my immediate thought is we share. This is part of all of our history. This is part of all of our shared identity as human beings. Yes, this can be yours too. It can't be yours exclusively. Right. So I'm not, you know, the old joke that why are the pyramids in Egypt? Because they were too heavy to move to the British Museum. Oof. Barely yeah. even a joke, right? So like there are definitely, you know, if somebody comes and said this is exclusively now mine, that's a problem. Right, right, right. But if somebody says, is there a way that we can make this part of everybody's shared culture? Yeah. And I think Egypt is a good country for this. I mean, tourism notwithstanding, like the fact that they're saying, no, this is part of all of human history's shared culture yeah that's a beautiful thing but of course they are the ones that get to do that right because it's their country so it's yeah yeah, i get that as well yeah it's always going to be a hard conversation talking about anybody's remains because it's sacred yeah it it just always is yeah and people have different definitions for sacred as well yeah so i mean or different reasons for why they are right exactly it's very personal yeah one of the like the hot button issues over the last 2000 years has been who gets to claim a, a couple of hills in southwest asia and a lot of people have claim to it a lot of people see it as a very sacred thing to their people and who if one person says only i get this all of a sudden we have a problem right but if we could figure out a way to share it maybe we could have a better time with it i don't know i don't like sharing yeah i mean we're americans right like that's mine mine i bought it with my money. Oof. It's, it's not <laughs> you, Owa. It's Iowa. <laughs> Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. State medical boards are the bodies that usually discipline physicians for things like malpractice. Well, yeah, sure. I guess that's I guess that's accurate. that's fair. I was yeah. reconsidering my words there as I said that. But consumer group Public Citizen has analyzed a confidential federal database that tracks physician disciplinary records. This is the database is only available to hospitals, malpractice insurers, and investigators, and has found such a wide variation in state medical board discipline rates that they say many boards aren't doing their jobs. So you know, states differ in their in the scope that they've allowed their medical boards to have their enforcement of the existing laws, their makeup, you know, who's on a medical board, their budgets, the options that they have to discipline physicians and their, you know, as I said, their authority. The public citizen group says that they want to expand public access to the database so that both consumers and boards more aggressively police the actions of physicians. On the other hand, hospitals, physicians, and the Federation of State Medical Boards are against this, arguing that public access to these databases would do more harm than good, since the public may not understand the data without more context, that hospitals already use the database during credentialing, and that unnecessary reputational harm would be done to physicians who have fixed whatever problems that they were disciplined for. So my question to you is, what role should the public be playing in physician oversight compared to hospital insurers and regulators. Is this a good idea? Is this a terrible idea? So what would need to what would need to be done to make it if it's a bad idea, what would be done to make it a better idea? So the first thing I'd say is data without context 
is not a good thing. Context must be given, right? Yeah, like we, we talked before about, you know, for instance, the, you know, genetic testing is useless unless you understand the context right. around a certain result. But I think that's an excellent point to this very thing. If this were made public, <clears throat> can anybody with any level of reality suggest that somebody isn't going to contextualize the heck out of this? More than one group. People love, like, nonprofit groups pop up all the time because they really like doing things like contextualizing data. It will happen. And then we're just going to have to, I mean, we're still going to be a step removed, but we're going to trust their contextualization of what does this mean? They're going to put things into graphs and charts. They're going to rank doctors based on things. They're going to rank severity of these types of things. I think that it can only be bad if that doesn't happen. But I have no doubt in my mind that there's going to be somebody on the internet that for free will do that work. That's definitely fair. Yeah. I mean, honestly, doctors, that doesn't sound good. You don't want somebody for free contextualizing. I, I don't want, I don't want just some rando saying, well, I saw that, you know, a whole bunch of doctors and a whole bunch of doctors did X, Y, or Z and I don't like it. I mean, isn't that what you're, that's not what you're talking about? So I'm thinking more like, like Wikipedia, for example. Like we like to tease Wikipedia, but at the end of the day, like. It's pretty useful. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, And (laughs) it ends up being a pretty non-biased source for information. But it had to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and I'm assuming. By democratizing the information. Right. It got there. It didn't get there because one guy sat down and said, I'm going to make sure that this is the case. Every time there's a flag that somebody says this might not be correct information is because another user pointed it out. But I think that I, I think that in this case, the general public wouldn't ha- I mean, probably that information doesn't exist to contextualize it. So like if a so if, you know, Dr. Etler was censured in some way by his state medical board, but he was like, hey, yeah, you know what? I did a dumb. I can fix that. I mean, I'm particularly compelled by the argument that, you know, people who have fixed whatever problem they had really don't deserve to suffer ongoing consequences from it. That's definitely which they would if they just looked at the raw. Hey, Dave Etler did this dumb thing or did this bad thing one time, you know? Yeah, I think right now, though, there isn't a lot of opportunity for the public to see what's going on with their doctors, right? Like doctors serve the public. They Mm -hmm. aren't meant to serve the business of the hospital or insurance. I know some hospital administrators who might disagree. Wow. Wow. You need better friends. I know of, I don't know any hospital administrators. (laughs) I know of hospital administrators. But yeah, no, I mean like, I think that it's extremely important that, just like you choose which auto zone you go to, maybe based on Google reviews. Right. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, honestly, sometimes I even choose my doctors based on, you know, those kind of iffy Google reviews, because there isn't really a lot of information on that's, which doctors are good. That's true. Except for word of mouth. So I, I so there's a hard and fast rule for anybody that has needed medical treatment in a hospital setting. Ask the nursing staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're going to have a procedure, ask the nursing staff, That's would you, true. don't ask, is he a good doctor? 
They won't answer that properly. Don't ask if he can do the job. Don't ask questions like that. What you need to ask is, would you let him operate on your family member? Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, when I look at, you know, I look at when I write help write MSPs and I look at the comments, you know, among the highest praise that you can give is I would love to have this person. I'd be great having this person help me or my family. Yeah. And if you can get that kind of praise from a coworker, or that at least that answer from a coworker, then that's the most accurate data that we can offer. Yeah. But the problem is not everybody knows to ask that question, one. But two, how can you put that on a large scale? Right? Yeah. And unless we can have those honest questions about the quality of these doctors, whether it be the ethical quality, you know, if they've done something to be censured in the past or just the competency of their care. If we don't have any tool right now, really, as the public, besides he was kind of nice. Yeah. It doesn't mean that he did a good job. Maybe he, you know, upcharged me $20,000 and nobody in the room told me. Right. Maybe, or maybe he did the wrong thing and you just got out lucky. Yeah. There have been a number of cases. I mean, obviously these are anecdotal because we don't have large data on this where doctors will perform a procedure, make a mistake, correct the mistake, but because they have phenomenal bedside manner, the person feels lucky that he had the doctor that was there mm-hmm. to take care of them, even though the doctor next door who maybe doesn't have the best bedside manner, which is its own problem. Might wouldn't have, have made, made that, that mistake. mistake would have saved them the complication the infection the extra sixty thousand dollars that is you know racking up their insurance fees we need something we need some level of transparency and if maybe perhaps you would like this instead of just giving it all to the public because you know the public doesn't know what they're doing with data anyway at least z-score stuff you know like i don't need to know for example i don't actually care what the 50th state is on any metric if they're all really tight you know if it's a few percentage points different on any metric, maternal mortality or number of primary care physicians or whatever the thing is. But if there's a big gap, if there's a big range, all of a sudden I do really care who's on the lower side and who's on the higher side. And this article that we're talking about, they showed the range of doctors being censured per 1,000 doctors, right? Yeah, yeah. And there was a really big range. And Yeah, and I think that's central to their argument that something needs to be fixed. Yeah. Okay. And, and saying, hey, we are going to come in and try to address this. If you don't, you need to get it within the range. Okay, well, that's something. But, like, we can't just look at it and say, oh, there's nothing that can be done. Let's just, yeah, leave, yeah. It, let's yeah. just leave it in the black box. Well, that's what, I mean, you're starting to answer the other question I had, which was, you know, what would we need to make this proposal a good proposal? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that that people have you know, come up with to maybe address this, like, you know, state medical boards are, of course, staffed, I think, mostly by physicians, which, you know, physicians are as tribal as the next group. So that could be a problem in that we want to protect the reputations of our fellow physicians. And yet, who else is going to have the expertise to be able to make these calls? Well, I mean, it, it, it may, they're the, right. the argument, right? I'm not right. saying that's necessarily always the case, but. Well, one of the, one of the, th- ways that the group proposes to address the problem is appointing pro-public members, you know, people who are, which I gather to mean people whose point of being on the board is to keep in mind the public. And I, if it's some of the members, I think that I could get on board with that, but I wouldn't want a jury system. You know, that would be silly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then you're just relying on the one expert in the room telling them. And then really it's just one person instead of a dozen. Yeah. Of course, adequate funding and staffing is always important. I'm 
I know that varies from state to state for sure. Oversight of boards, which I'm not sure how to deal with because aren't they're the overseers, like who who watches the watchers kind of kind of deal. Excellent reference. And uh, and also just you know proactive investigations. So people who so I guess trying to figure out who's going to make mistakes. I don't understand this one at all. <laughs> like, I feel like I need to ponder that one I think a little I, bit. <laughs> I yeah. didn't get that. I didn't I didn't understand that suggestion. There is a really fantastic book out there about this. It's called Unaccountable by Marty McCary. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's We had him on the show a couple years ago now. It's a fantastic yeah. book and it's kind of scary actually. Yeah. And I think that potentially your opinion about this would change if you like sat down and read the book cuz darn. I like I was taken aback. There are just things that you never really think about when it comes to like your healthcare and you Oh yeah, it's there there are so many ways that the system breaks down and doesn't and doesn't do its job. Yeah. I will say though, like one of the nice things about I love Marty McCary, big fan. One of the things that I learned in that book is that there are efforts being made to hold people to a higher accountability. For example, one of the examples that they used was a professional, like a specialty, not national college of the specialty would send out letters to members of the specialty who were more than a standard deviation away from the averages on certain procedures, right? Like you are, say it's like, for example, most surgery, like you are doing too many cuts, you're costing the patient too much money, you're spending too much time on this and you are an outlier in your field. Yeah. This is what the experts say you should be doing. And you are an outlier on this. Okay, so maybe bring it in. Or OBGYNs. This is what the experts in the field of OBGYN say is about average, about normal for the number of C-sections that you should be doing per 1,000 patients or something like that. And you are a clear statistical outlier. And so we want you to bring that back in. Or sending letters to somebody and saying, hey, you're actually leading the field in this and we want to, we want to thank you. You know, or well, maybe we want to know what you're doing. Yeah. So that other people can do similar. Exactly. So, at, I mean, his point is that more of that needs to be done. But the fact that, sure. you know, there are efforts being so made. So I is, see it. I, OK, so now I think I understand more about what they mean might mean by proactive investigations. Yeah. yeah. Look at looking at people who are outliers in certain areas that we know are risk factors yeah. for these types of mistakes that would lead to censure. How do you remember all the shit that you remember, Jeff? I mean, honest to God, I was born with the brain of a sieve. I had the man on the show. He talked about this and I couldn't tell you. You want to know the answer? Yeah. And I'm not suggesting this to everybody in the audience, but it works for me. I couldn't tell you a single one of my professor's names. <laughs> not a one of them. No. I've been in medical school for a year and I don't know any of them. <laughs> I spent. He picks and chooses. Yeah, yeah. Well, I talked to Sipple about his birds and his dinosaurs. He can't forget a man that studies dinosaurs. True. That's, he, for those of you who don't know, he taught us neuro. So he taught 50 lectures, 50 yeah. hours worth of material that I've sat down staring at this man's face. <laughs> and then I'm just about the brain and the nervous system. And then later on in the semester, I had a conversation with him. Turns out, He's like, yeah, my main focus is dinosaurs. I study dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, why are you teaching neuro in a medical school? <laughs> he took his wife to Italy so he could go to a dinosaur conference and take her to Rome. I was like, you were just, <laughs> who are awesome. you? So, yeah, I learned his name. He's he's an outlier. He's a, yeah, he's a unique guy. Oh, man. God love him. 
that synaptic pruning, guys. Forget the stuff that's not useful, like the yeah, names I feel of the like people my, teaching yeah. you. My synapses are pruned almost as soon as they bud. If there's like a little guy in there is like, nope, can't keep that one. No green thumb for oh, Dave. It's the worst. It Dave's like, worst. I got to remember what color I go on the intersection. I don't have room for other people's information right now. I had now. this whole discussion with my wife the other day about how I drive and plan for and plan ahead for routes and all this kind of stuff. I'm just winging it, baby. <laughs> I'm, you know. We're glad you make it to school every day. I try. <laughs> I try. If I'm honest, I think for me, and this is, we were talking about this pre-show, like one of the, medical, is a, medical school is a wonderful place. It is challenging academically, but I think that it's a wonderful place because you get to be around people that are looking for the same things that you're looking for in the long run. They're trying to make sure that we have healthier people. They're trying to take care of patients. That's something that anybody that's here, or at least I hope most people at the very least, are very interested in. But I came here because I'm an idealist and I want to make big system changes, you know, just like change the world kind of guy. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about these types of things and reading these types of books. And yeah, I learned neuro and I learned biochemistry and then right now i'm learning about microbes and i love microbiology it's super exciting but at the end of the day yeah i'm reading marty mccary i'm reading you know robert pearl's books on i'm thinking about big systems and how we can make healthcare better that's what i'm interested in well i wish I you had, i wish is. you were gonna you said you started to say this is the answer and i was like all excited i was like finally 53 <laughs> years old i'm gonna be able to start remembering to put my watch on in the morning consistently get it tattooed on your arm I, a little a little to-do list and then you just write it right there i stopped seeing things after a while yeah for somebody this who is why i have to change lot, my notification sound on my phone because i'll stop hearing it I, I gotta be honest with you dave i keep a toothbrush in my backpack because i've often left the house and be like dang it i forgot something again. i have a brush on the way all right well i feel a little bit better <laughs> jeff found thanks for being on the show with me today happy to be here dave <laughs> uh, what kind of oddity would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcuts, for making this part of your week? If you're new and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available. You know where they are. I'm not going to say them again. The producer of this episode is me, Dave Etler. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm, it, I'm, the, yeah. I'm Dave Etler <laughs> saying, don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, Shortcoats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too.
This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance 